The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God we, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You can be seated. That's God's word. Good morning, Delta. How you doing this morning? Good, good, good. Um, just so you know, we uh, got information today that the air conditioning is not working. So what we're not trying to do is make you sweat at church this morning. Um, it's just literally a, um, a, a system in the building is not functioning um, rightly. So this isn't like crank up the heat Sunday, make them sweat Sunday, that kind of thing, right? It's just literally the, the Goodwill building is just in the midst of fixing some parts. And it just happens to be um, Sunday you show up on the day where it's a little bit more muggier than normal. So... Um, just to try to give you um, that, uh, that heads up there. What we're going to be doing this morning is talking about the victory of faith from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is going to be a theme that we're going to see pop up through these five verses. Um, and what we're going to do is hit pause, we're going to pray, and then we're going to crank up and look at what John has to say to us as he begins the fifth chapter of his first letter. So why don't you join me in prayer? God, it is by the Spirit that we hear the words of Christ proclaimed. And we believe in the power of the Spirit to do that very thing, to cause our eyes to see and to cause our ears to hear when the good news of Jesus is proclaimed from the Bible. So, God, I'm asking now, I believe in the power of the Spirit to do this, to come and to magnify the name of Jesus. So, Spirit, come and do these things. Not so that we may boast in me or boast in us or boast in anything other than the good news that Jesus is a great Savior who saves great sinners. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, most of you know this, some of you may not, but my undergrad, when I was studying at Southern Illinois University of Carbondale, my undergrad was in architecture. And while I was studying for my undergrad in architecture, every so often we'd have these design classes. And what was cool about these design classes is they would take us to a real-life site, and then what they'd basically do is create a project. And one of these projects, um, one of these assignments was that we had to go down to Cairo, Illinois. And so Cairo, Illinois, very southern tip of Illinois, it's the little city down there where the Ohio and the Mississippi River come together. And so at this particular point in southern Illinois, what you have is that junction where the Ohio comes zipping in that crashes into the Mississippi and they blend together and then they flow, flow together down into um, the Gulf. And what happened is that in this particular design project, what we were meant to do is, was to design a museum that would commemorate basically river life because of the, these two rivers being two major um, waterways in, in America. 
And what was the title of this design project the teacher gave was this. He called it the confluence of the rivers. Because a confluence is what happens when various things, in this case the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, when they come to a point and merge together. The word we use to describe that, the, that, that crashing together, that junction, that point where things merge together, a confluence. So he called this project the confluence of the rivers. And so now what happens when you step back and you look at 1 John chapter 5, 1 through 5, what we see is a confluence of John's thought here in this letter. Um, in our sense, in a sense, our text for this morning is like that point down in southern Illinois. Just as those two major rivers merge together at that particular point, so here in these five verses, beginning in 1 John chapter 5, we have the merger of three streams of thought which John has been teaching us so far in his letter. Now, over again, we have pointed out the main purpose of John's letter. John tells us here in a couple of, in the two weeks, we're going to see him say this, but we've dipped forward and we've brought forward this truth. At the very end of his letter, he says, listen, this is why I wrote what I wrote. This is why I came up with these ideas. This is why I'm writing to you as believers. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things, everything I've been saying so far to you, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And what we said was this. John is writing this letter to believers who are genuinely born again. They are in Christ. They're trusting in Jesus as their only hope of salvation. And he's writing to them with the particular purpose of encouraging them. Giving them ways they can know and have assurance that they really do have eternal life. And John's confession is that he's writing this way so that they may have eternal life. And we've said that in order to accomplish this purpose of encouraging them in this way, he's been repeating three tests over and over and over again. He's been giving us the test of right belief that you can know and be assured that you have eternal life when you are believing rightly according to the Scriptures. You can have assurance and know that you have eternal life. And he does this by giving us the test of right obedience. If right obedience towards Jesus flows out of your confession of eternal life. And then the third test was this, the test of right love. When we experience this vertical love in the Father expressed in His Son, Jesus Christ, and then it works itself out on the horizontal planes of life, John says, this is a sign, this is an evidence. Be assured you have eternal life. These three tests have been the major streams of thought which have been flowing throughout John's letter over and over and over again. They're all tributaries, you could say. And they've been flowing in different directions. They've been saying different things. But all these streams of thought, these tributaries come crashing together at a point, specifically verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5. And so when you look at your copy of Scripture, you see this, that in verses 1, 4, and 5... John is talking about belief. So you see this idea of belief mixing together at this confluence. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, using faith there as a substitute word for belief. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
And then in verses 1, 2, and 3, you see John pack together that idea of love five times in three verses. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So you see that love stream crashing around and mixing and mingling there in these verses. And then when you look at verses 2 and 3, you see this idea of obedience, this idea of keeping God's commands. End of verse 2, when we love God, we obey His commands. Verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep, that we obey, that we do His commandments. But now the interesting thing is this, is that when all these various streams of thought come crashing together in verses 1 through 5... Two main ideas which have been lurking in the background of John's letter all of a sudden immediately come to surface and they get extreme attention put onto them. As John merges these three tests together, these twin ideas of overcoming the world, this idea of victory comes to the surface, and this idea of being born of God comes to the surface. And they almost become like the foundation which John is going to emphasize because this foundation of being born of God and what that means for us in regard to rightly believing, being born of God, and what that means for rightly loving, being born of God, and what that rightly means in obeying, and what that ultimately means for our victory, our ability to overcome the world. John says this, listen, like this is one of his last times where these three streams of thought are going to get extreme importance. And so what he does is he crashes them together, and then it's almost like as soon as he crashes them together, he sort of pulls them away and says, I want you to see these two things. I want you to see the reality of what it means to overcome the world in the way that John defines this in his letter. And he says, I want you to see this other idea of what it means to be born of God. And so the underlying foundation, as I just said, is of all that John is going to say this morning, it ultimately rests upon this thing we call the new birth. The reality of what it means to be born of God. And so the first thing John is going to do is he's going to connect this idea of being born of God to right belief in Jesus. If you open up your copy of Scripture, you'll notice that John is going to talk about belief. Use that word believe at the beginning of verse 1 and at the end of verse 5. So look what John says. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Jump down to verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So in these verses, we see that it's by the new birth we come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By the new birth, we come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So what does it mean to be born of God? What's the, how does the Bible talk about this phrase? Specifically, how does John talk about this phrase just here inside his letter? And it's this, to be born of God is a biblical description of what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes being born of God is described as being born again. And some of your translations, if you go to John chapter 3, it's to be born from above. And other times... This idea of being born of God is described as the new birth. But the fact is, no matter what term is used, to be born of God, it's not an optional experience for the children of God. 
right? It's not like there's some people who are children of God who haven't been born of God. And there's some children of God who have been born of God. No, to be a child of God is to be born of God. Now, notice that in these two verses, verse 1 and in verse 5, John shows us the origin of our belief and the object of our belief. Okay, the origin of our belief and the object of our belief. So whenever the Bible speaks of the object of our belief, it says belief is to rest on something concretely outside of ourselves. The Bible never speaks of believing for just the mere sake of believing. It never calls us to have just belief in belief. It never encourages us to have faith for the sake of faith. It doesn't talk about belief in abstract terms, things like belief in love, like whatever that means. You know, I believe in love. Or just to have like faith in faith, whatever, whatever that means. No, whenever you scan the scriptures and you work through the testimony and the witness of the prophets and the apostles, the common refrain of the scripture is that Christian belief has a distinctive and irreducible content. Our belief, our faith is to rest on someone in particular, someone specific. And for John, he describes what the object of our belief is to be like in verse 1 and verse 5. For John, God's children are to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the way to describe and think about genuine belief. Genuine belief looks like this. Believing that the man, Christ, man Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ. That man Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And for John, it is just very clear that whatever else an individual may claim to believe or whatever other position they may hold, if a man or woman does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they are not to be called a Christian. Genuine Christianity, genuine belief rests on this dual fact. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? It means what we said something similar last week. To look at Jesus of Nazareth, to look at the Galilean carpenter, was to just look at no mere man. To look upon Jesus was to look upon God himself, God incarnate, God cloaked in flesh. It was to look upon the one who would come and save his people from their sins. And not only that, but Jesus is the Christ. And what does it mean that he is the Christ? It's to say this. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. To look upon Jesus was to look upon the hoped for and promised deliverer who would be the savior of the world. So when it comes to the object of our belief, the apostle John says this. These two truths are absolutely crucial. Genuine faith the ingredients of genuine faith, of genuine belief, rest on these two twin truths. So after showing us the object of our belief, John then turns and shows us the origin of our belief. So the object of our belief, whoever, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, you jump down to verse 5, 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the object. That's what our belief, our faith is to rest in, to rest in Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Son of God. But when you go back up to verse 1, you see that John continues that thought. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God has been born of God. And what he's doing now is switching to show us the origin of our belief. So when a person believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John says this is evidence that this person has been born of God. Why? For everyone who is presently, actively, right now, in this moment, believing, trusting that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John says they have experienced a past event which has happened to them. This person has been born of God. Listen, the universal plight of man is that he is blinded by his sin, walking in darkness, separated from God. And because this is true, he is without hope because ultimately he is without God. Man is spiritually dead in his sin and he is in need of spiritual life. The Apostle Paul takes this same truth and he sums it up. This way, when he, when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So John says this is the plight of man. This is the predicament that man, I'm using man, capital N, man, humanity finds themselves in. Dead in trespasses and sins. Dead because we follow the course of this world. Dead and considered sons of disobedience against God. Dead because we live in the passions of our flesh against God. Dead because we carry out the desires of the body and the mind, which are desires ultimately that are against God. Bottom line summary, because of these realities, we are nature of children. By nature, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the biblical reality of man, humanity outside of Christ. Now, as we piece together these truths concerning man and his predicament, this question comes to mind. At least it's the question that comes to mind for me when I think about these realities. Since these things are true, that we're blinded by sin, we walk in darkness, we're separated from God, we're without hope, we're without God, we're spiritually dead in our sin and trespasses, we're in need of spiritual life. The question that comes to mind is that since these things are true, how does anyone come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Like, how does it happen? This is similar to the question that we asked last week. Like, how does anybody come to see the realities of God's love? We said it was by the Spirit of the God opening our eyes to see Christ for who He is. To see the love that God has lavishly bestowed upon us. So the question now is this. If this is the universal reality of mankind, which it is, how does anyone come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And according to verse 1, John's answer is this. Spiritually dead sinners come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, when God causes them to be born again. In answer, the, the, it comes down to this. 
The answer is the new birth. That is how people come to believe. This is how people who are spiritually dead come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the new birth. Listen, after Paul marches through those first three verses in Ephesians chapter 2, where he exposes the total inability of man to save himself because he is dead in his trespasses and sins, Paul goes on to say this, but God. And if you've ever listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones, there's a famous sermon where he preaches these words. He's a, he's a pastor from um, um, England who's, who's long gone uh, and passed away, but he has a sermon called But God. And it would just be a good hour spent to go and hunt that down and listen to it, where he basically preaches a whole sermon on those two words, but God. And the good news that is wrapped up in the reality is that, yes, man's predicament is that we are dead. We are sons of disobedience. We are far from God. We need life, but we are totally incapable of producing spiritual life from within. And so the question comes, how does man who is spiritually dead become spiritually alive? And Paul switches to the good news of the gospel when he says, but God, he is the one who is the answer. God. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So there's that love theme. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, this God made us alive together with Christ. Summary, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. God is the giver of life. God is the giver of life. And what spiritually dead men and spiritually dead women need is someone who can speak powerful, life-giving words of authority which turns spiritual death into spiritual life. And the resounding chorus of Scripture is that God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, is this person who does this. He is the one who speaks commanding, powerful words of authority into the hearts of men and women who are spiritually dead, regenerating their heart, turning their hearts on, causing their hearts to be born again, bringing about new birth in their hearts so that they return and return, receive and believe Christ for who he is, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God. And one of the clearest illustrations of this is in John's account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So this man, John, the apostle, wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. It's also the same man who wrote the Gospel of John. And when you zip back into the Gospel of John and you hunt down chapter 11, what you have is the interaction of Jesus and his friend named Lazarus. Lazarus had died. This man, Lazarus, had been dead four days in the tomb. And what happened was this man who had been four days in the tomb, he came out of the tomb in response to a command from Jesus. John records that when Jesus shows up on the scene and he finds out that Lazarus has been buried in the tomb for four days, he first weeps for his friend, but then what he does is he begins to speak commands to the dead man in the tomb. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this meme before. It's a picture of like Michael Jackson. He's holding like a bo- he's holding like a little container of popcorn, and he's got this face where he's like really excited, and, and like it looks like he's expectantly looking for something. Like if we could plop a meme back into John chapter 11, it would be the people standing around as Jesus begins to speak commands to a dead person. There would be people standing around being like, I don't know what's going on, but like this is going to be good. Like, right, let's grab a piece of little thing of popcorn. We're going to sit down and watch because like he's talking to a dead guy right now. And like most people understand like dead people don't respond to commands. Dead people don't respond to words being spoken to them, no matter how soft or how loud Someone talks to them. Dead people don't listen. I can't tell a dead person, get up and walk, and that person gets up and walk. We don't have that power. But John records that Jesus rolls up on the scene and cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, you, sir, come out. And the man who had died, buried dead four days in the tomb, comes back to life and walks out. Now, on the surface, nothing could just be more foolish. I mean, after all, how could a dead man hear this loud voice? It'd be like me going out into the graveyard, local cemetery here in town, up where Lincoln is buried. And if I just see someone walking around, and you, sir, and you, sir, walk around and be like, man, we need to, like, call the police or something, man. Like, this guy's walking around talking to people who are dead and buried in, 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 the, in the cemetery. Like, this isn't right thinking. It looks like foolishness. But yet Jesus is there speaking to the dead. Appears foolish. So we can ask ourselves, how in the world can a dead man hear the loudest voice? Well, think about this. Well, how is it that a spiritually dead person responds to the gospel command to repent and believe? It's the exact same command we have in the scriptures. The gospel comes to us and there is a, an expectation that we respond in obedience to the gospel. But if we're spiritually dead, how is it that spiritually dead people come to respond to the command of repent and believe? See, the answer lies in the power of the one who speaks. And when Jesus, the Lord of life, speaks life into death, death has no choice but to respond in obedience. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who creates spiritual life. He is the one who brings the dead sinner to birth by the word of his power. It is the life-giving word of Jesus which raises the spiritually dead. And John says the first evidence that this has happened to you is that you come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we could just camp here and spin out because there's just implications which abound like crazy to this reality. That God is the one who brings new life. We are born of God because God initiates us. This is exactly what John was saying in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. It's what he's saying in chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing substitute for our sins. Implications abound all over the place for this. Listen, some of you are here this morning looking for spiritual life. Like you're genuinely seeking, you're genuinely asking questions, you're genuinely trying to wrap your mind around this this thing, this reality of Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he said. 
And the good news is that for those of us here this morning who are looking for spiritual life, the question is that you've got to be asking yourself and building a category for is this. I'm starting to recognize, like, I really am spiritually dead. How do I move from spiritual death to spiritual life? And the Bible doesn't say, well, reach into yourself. Like, believe in yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get your act together. Start believing in Jesus as the Christ. No, the scriptures say, look to the one who can grant spiritual life. That's the good news of the gospel is that we're so incapable of doing ourselves that the only place we can look to is the Christ who died on the cross. He is the giver and the granter of life. Are you here this morning saying, man, my eyes are starting to see, scales are starting to fall from my eyes. Like I'm seeing the reality. I am spiritually dead and God is starting to sprinkle the seeds of life into you. The winds of the spirit are blowing and you're starting to see things and ask questions that you've never asked before. What do you do in that moment? Bend your knee and say, God, the giver of life, grant new life to my heart. And the resounding chorus of the scriptures is this. That is a prayer God is pleased to answer. That is a prayer God is pleased to answer. How do we hear the words of life spoken to us this morning? Lazarus heard the physical words from Jesus. Lazarus, I want you to come out now. And by the word and power And the authority of the name of Christ, Lazarus responded. We can't hear Jesus speak to us audibly today like Lazarus did some 2,000 years ago. So how do you hear the powerful, authoritative words of the living Christ today, this morning? The word. New life is found in the word. This also has implications just for missions. Some of you here, you just desire spiritual life for your neighbors. You know you've been born again. You desire spiritual life for your family or your co-workers. The same truth is for you. How do we see people come from spiritual death into spiritual life? And it revolves around the word. Praying the word for them. Pointing them to the word. Asking them, would you like to come and study the word? Have you ever considered reading the gospel of John? Can I help you walk through the book of Romans? Can I show you biblical truths from the book of Ephesians? It's these sorts of things. Listen, if our hope of seeing spiritual death become spiritual life rests in us, man, that's a hard, hard road to hoe. The Bible says our job isn't to try and convert people. Our job is to point people to the one who converts sinners. So by the new birth, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And now John says it's by the new birth that God's children love God and obey his command to love others. So some of you are getting sweaty because we just spent like almost our whole sermon like on the first like part. Like the first phrase of the first verse and the last phrase of the last verse. It's going to go quicker. So rest assured, wipe the sweat from your brow. We'll, we'll, we'll move along here a little bit quicker. So by the new birth, we come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And now John says it's by the new birth that God's children, these people who have come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it's by the new birth that they actually love God. And it's by the new birth that they actually obey the command to love others. Look at what John says in 1b, the last part of verse 1 through verse 3. He says this now, everyone who loves the father loves whoever's been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. How? When we love God and obey his commandments. In a nutshell, this is 
what the love of God looks like. That we keep His commandments. And the good news is this, that His commandments are not burdensome. The new birth brings us into a relationship with God as Father. John has already told us that God the Father first loved us, and as a result, we now love Him. However, as a result of being born of God, we not only love the Father, but now we love whoever has been born of the Father. For John, the sign that you love God is that you love others, especially those who have been born of Him. That's what he's driving at there in verse 1. But then John goes on to say, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. So if you go back into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, a guy shows up on the scene and says, Jesus, Old Testament, really big, really long, boil it down for me. Like, like g- give me like the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, it's this, this is the great command. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So you hear what he's saying there? Like, this is the nutshell of the Old Testament. This is the nutshell of what God is asking of those who love him. Love God, love others. Like, that's the summary of the Old Testament in a nutshell. So John the Apostle in this letter here is saying this. When we love God and obey his commandment to love our neighbor as we have been loved... John says this actually becomes a sign that we do love the children of God. According to John, our love for others is the natural complement to our first love for God. And so in three, John says this, this, this is just the nutshell. Let me boil it down for you. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And the good news is his commandments that he's calling us to keep, calling us to obey. They're not, they're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Now, when someone in the Bible says God has commands for you and I, and he says we are to obey these commands, we are to keep these commands, oh, by the way, they're not burdensome. The immediate question I have is this. Well, how is it that God's command to love others is if I have been loved? Like, how is that not burdensome? Like, how is that not burdensome? Because if I'm honest, at times this command feels like a burden. To love others as I've been loved in Christ. You go back to chapter 3 verse 16. By this we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. So we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Whew. That's heavy. It can be a burden sometimes to live in such a way where I'm constantly laying my life down for you. He goes on in verse 17, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John further goes and explains the self-sacrificial love that Christ had for us and that what we're to do for others. If anyone has the world's goods, if I see a brother in need and I have the full capability to meet that need, John says this, we display our love for others and ultimately our love for God when I look at the need of my brother and go, hey, I can meet that need and then live in such a way where I sacrifice things of value for me in order to meet the needs of others. That's hard. Like John doesn't say, hey, if you can pull this off one time, check it off your list and you're good. Like this is to be the constant state that we live in as believers. Like that can feel burdensome at times, not something to be desired. 
So the question is this, how is it that God's command to love others, as I have been loved by God, how is that not burdensome? And John says this, let me explain to you why loving God by keeping his commandment to love other people, it's not burdensome. And he says it's not burdensome, beginning of verse 4, for this reason. God's commands are not burdensome. Why? For this reason, verse 4, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Look at what John writes in those two verses. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, the last truth that John wants to show us is this, that by the new birth, God's children overcome the world. And his point is pretty simple. In the new birth, you and I receive a new nature. And with this new nature comes new affections and new heart desires. Because we now love God instead of hating him, we treasure and value him above everyone and everything else. And because we treasure and value him above everyone and everything else, we now delight in obeying him. It's the reason why, part of the reason why his commandments are not burdensome. In the new birth, the old John Davis nature, which did see the commands of God as burdensome, has been replaced with the nature of God. That's chapter 3, verses 9. And now with that new nature implanted in us, it completely rearranges our desires. Where at one time we used to look at the command of God, love God, forget that, love others, no way. Now what we do with this new nature, this new desire dwelling within us because God has put it there when he caused us to be born again, we now look at the love of God and go, yes, I do love God. We look at the commands of God and go, those are no longer truly burdensome because God has borne a new desire in me to see his law, to see his commands and go, yes, that is something to be desired. They're no longer burdensome. We now find his commands to not be a burden, but a blessing. They are no longer a drudgery, but they are a delight. And as a result of the new birth, God's commands are just no longer burdensome. Rather, they are now actually desirable. In short, John is just saying this, we are able to love God and we're able to love others because in the new birth we have overcome the world. Now the reason why the world needs to be overcome is because in the world there are forces that work to make us not love God and not love each other and not keep God's commandments. So when you're reading this down here, John is saying this, his commands are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Well, because everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And he's going to tease us out a little bit. Well, what does John mean by overcoming the world? Like, why does the world even need to be overcome? And I think the answer is this. The world needs to be overcome because in the world there are forces that work to overcome us. There are forces that seek to make us not love God, that seek to make us not love each other, and seek to make us not desire to keep God's commandments. But John's point is that for everyone who has been born of God, these forces have been overcome. Remember that when John speaks of the world in this way, he's referring to Satan's organized system, which is opposed to God and hostile to Jesus and his followers. When Jesus speaks of the world in this way, 
John summarizes this reality in this letter when he said earlier, chapter 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, these things are not from the Father. These things are from the world. So the forces in the world that need to be overcome are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you can sum them up like this. The forces of the world that need to be overcome are these desires for what we don't have, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and what we do have but take pride in, the pride of life. And John recognizes that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life have a way of working into our heart and replacing love for God and love for people. He sees that the main reason we don't love God and find it burdensome to keep his commands is that at times our cravings are for the things of the world. The world has a way of making us think that God's commands are burdensome. This is the ultimate problem of the world, the way John is talking about it here in verse 4 and verse 5. But John says there is a solution, and that solution is firmly grounded in our new birth. The reason loving God and keeping God's commands are not burdensome is because we have been born of God, and this new birth conquers the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, he says. Now we can see what this means, and as one pastor put it, he says like this, the new birth severs the root of those cravings for the world, overcoming the world means that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they don't rule us anymore. Their power has been broken by the new birth. So before we've been born of God, we were completely captured by these desires for things that we don't have and pride in the things that we do have. We completely gave ourselves over to this. We couldn't help but give ourselves over to this. We lived in that world system. But John says that we now, as believers, are no longer encaptured by the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life, the things of this world. Why? Because the new birth brought about by God has come and has severed that root from the world and has now placed us firmly in Jesus Christ. That is why we now overcome the world, not because we've done anything, but because of what Christ has done in us and for us. For this reason, John goes on to say, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The reason being born of God overcomes the world is because being born of God creates faith. Once again, the same pastor says, faith simply sees that Jesus is better than the world. And when God opens the eyes of your heart to see that Jesus is the better of the world, is better than the world, when we look at the world what we can see is that we have victory over the world because we now see the world for what it is because we've seen the more beautiful vision, the more beautiful treasure, the more beautiful value of Jesus Christ. This is why faith overcomes the world, he goes on to say. The world held us in bondage by the power of its desires, but now our eyes have been opened by the new birth to see the superior desirability of Jesus. Jesus is better than the desires of the flesh, 
Jesus is better than the desires of the eyes. And Jesus is better than the riches that strangle us with greed and pride. In the end, the Apostle John just simply wants us to see that Jesus is superior. And faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So as you go out into the world tomorrow, and the world begins to bombard you with its lies, begins to call you to find fulfillment in its desires, as it seeks to overcome you with its troubles, I think the Apostle John would have us remember what Jesus said back in the Gospel of John. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Christ, you are the King, and you are the one who rules and reigns over everything. God, we are spiritually dark and spiritually dead. We need new birth. Father, thank you for the way that you do these things in us. All for your name's sake and all for your glory. God, you are good. And I pray that in this moment that you would work newness of life in the hearts of men and women who need to have new spiritual life worked in them. God, do this right now. We believe in the power of the Spirit to be able to do this. So, Father, come and do these things. For those of us who have been born of God, who are right now believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God, my prayer is that you would begin to work in us the realities of what it means to live life, the implications of the new birth, which is this. It's a, we overcome the world. We have the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith, which has been planted in us by the Father, that is good news. May we grasp onto that promise and live life in such a way, whether we're a mommy or a daddy, whether we work at home or we work in an office, whether we work out or don't work out, whatever we might do in the spheres of our life with the implications of our our new birth bleed out into all areas of life, living with the victory that is ours because we're in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.